and welcome. It is Saturday, October 29th, 2022. Sean, it has been a while. It's been, uh, I think, about a year, right? We said we were going to do season two in January, and our season two has been sparse. We wanted a lot of build up to its suspense. Yeah. Well, here we are uh, at the at the appointed hour. We are about a week away, a little more than a week away from the midterm elections. Uh, this is particularly important in Arizona because it seems like we've got a lot of stuff going on around the election. We, our state, I should say, was in the news recently because we had some uh, armed, is vigilantes a stretch? I think vigilantes might be a little bit of a hyperbolic word, potentially. Okay. We have armed observers, maybe? Armed observers for different uh, polling locations appear in the state of Arizona uh, just this past week. Uh, that got some attention. Someone uh, broke into the uh, Democratic candidate for office, uh, Katie Hobbs. Someone broke into her campaign headquarters, and that made the news. And Sean, would you believe that they called that a false flag? Uh, they meaning the opposition. That uh, and you, they you meaning don't say that's right. a shocker. Yeah, no kidding, right? Um, that uh, that you would go crawling on on parlor or the new parlor, and. And observe that people are calling it a false flag. Um, so, well, the new, new, new parlor, right? Right, right. The uh, zombie resurrected parlor is—it's back. It's got a new format, but that this is a little bit of an aside. But the the, the main thing is a lot of things have happened um, in between the last time we checked in and now, uh, including a bunch of different, uh, you know, social media platforms have kind of cropped up or, or emerged as prominent. We can kind of get to that later. But the main point is is that Arizona is in the news for the wrong reasons and we've got a lot of misinformation and conspiracies surrounding not only the midterms in Arizona but also kind of nationwide I mean and more importantly we're back now yeah yeah also that uh, it, <laughs> I I you know let, let's let's I mean I think it could be easy to to just kind of cherry pick some of these more local conspiracies about, you know, the false flag at Katie Hobbs's office or, um, you know, just this notion that the election in Arizona is, is, is rigged. And I, and I think that's one thing that we're seeing and in, in, in maybe one thing that we can maybe launch with is that already kicking around um, social media uh, in, in kind of uh, far right conversations about the midterm election, there's this growing idea that if, uh, the Republican candidate for office does not actually win the election, then it will only be because of election fraud. And this seems kind of like a powder keg because even though the Republican candidate is up a few points in polling, it's by no means uh, you know so conclusive that a win in the other direction is impossible. So things are going to be pretty tense here with this rigged election conspiracy here in our state. Yes, and, and we've had the Secretary of State, uh, candidate, Republican candidate for Secretary of State has says the, said this, as well as the Republican candidate for governor have said, they, they both said this. But they also were both involved in a, a lawsuit earlier, um, a couple months ago, they sued the Maricopa County trying to force the county to hand count ballots because right. they were saying 
that's more accurate, the hand counting of ballots, which the county then said, that's A, not the case, and B, the number of humans required for us to hand count the number of ballots that we will receive in a timely manner is just impossible for us to to do that. But that's part of a of a strategy, right? The they knew the lawsuit wasn't going to go anywhere, but that feeds into, well, of course things are corrupt. Of course, you know, the vote counts are going to be wrong to kind of soften, you know, so if I don't agree with the results of the election, you're already prepared to expect just like in 2020, you're prepared to expect that the election is a fraud. Right. Yeah. And if you're processing news kind of episodically, you might think, oh, stuff stuff is going on in Arizona. But I think, you know, uh, it can be helpful to view this as a, a longer arc where the election was contested in 2020. Then we had an election audit uh, in 2021. Uh, and then I think the audit word is very generous, though, right? This is sure, sure. This, this is the- a handful of folks that were not experienced in working with elections or experienced in election policy. So they yes, were that not whole, experts, right? Yeah, that fiasco, that fiasco. So we had that fiasco in, in 2021. And now, you know, it, it's almost like every year there's something. And now this year, we're, as you were saying, kind of loading people up to feel like this election could be could be rigged. And so Really, it's more like it's the same thing all over again uh, in some ways here in the state when it comes to attacking the integrity of the elections. But let's let's well, let's stop. Well, go ahead. And I think we'll also just add it's I know Arizona has been in the news, but this is not unique. Right. We have candidates across the country that are making similar claims. It just happens to be that the candidates in Arizona seem to be. Uh, kind of the superstars of some of those claims getting a lot more television, but also because I think some of this goes back to Arizona being called for Biden during the 2020 election and the sort of drama that ensued afterwards. So Arizona has kind of held that spotlight, but these claims that we're discussing are not unique to Arizona. These are happening across the country. So there's kind of a national conspiracy theory, right? That's, that's being followed that says that, you know, the, the election is rigged. Yeah. And I, I think this is a great direction to go. We, you know, we have a set of local problems and, and local conspiracies at this point though. I don't think I've encountered any conspiracies that seem like they are unique to Arizona or that they aren't, that they don't just feel like reskinned versions of the same conspiracy we've been hearing for a while now, uh, whether it's, you know, false flags um, to this idea of people ballot harvesting or even the idea of a mule or a ballot mule, which I think is like a, an important uh, like mythological animal uh, or mythological creature uh, for conspiracy theories pertaining to this election cycle and the last one that might be important to think about. Uh, your favorite film, uh, 2000 Mules, is in the news again. Yes, it's kind of a film that won't die in a way. Um, and I think we use the word film very loosely, right, this genre. But I think this is part of the genre of, I'm going to call this a, a disinfomentary, for lack of a better term, because it's not it is a, a film by a filmmaker. It is a film. Uh, sure. Okay, that's fair enough. But but it's it's basically kind of created as, and it's implied that it's this factual documentary, right? Like, like Ken Burns is involved sort of situation. And that's, but this has, this is sort of a closer 
relationship with Pandemic than it does with, you know, a Kinsburn film. Sure. And I, and that's I mean, important. Okay. Yes. So I think stylistically it resembles another one of your favorite films, Pandemic. Although this film is is by Dinesh D'Souza the, from the same group that brought you uh, Obama's America, uh, Trump Card, uh, The Secret History of the Democratic Party, uh, Death of a Nation, and now 2,000 Mules. Um, this is Dinesh D'Souza, who's this you know right wing political commentator who's been known to kind of produce films and and also be a big proponent of of some of the most toxic conspiracies uh, that we've observed uh, around 2020 and beyond. Well, and um, I think that it's important to understand that it's why it's kind of coming back is that there's a lot of mainstream media coverage that's reviewing the claims. And so they've kind of resurrected, the media in many ways has resurrected this film and made it popular again. Yeah, and I think that's a, an interesting point that, you know, this film first kind of broke out and became really popular in, I would say, like late May, I think, if we... Okay, so this film is should be one of these things where its moment in the spotlight has ended. But most recently, it has kind of started coming up again. What do you suppose accounts for that? Well, I think first we say in late May, there's a lot of debunking and fact-checking of this film. And there's a whole host of articles in the mainstream media to do that. But I think the fact-checking, uh, so the, sorry, not the fact-checking, but I think it's kind of resurfaced again, kind of in a, in a zombie fashion, as we'd say, um, because the claims in the film are continuing to be put forth by some extreme right-wing politicians. And so the media coverage often goes back to, well, oh, well, there's also this documentary that describes some of these issues, but all the claims of the documentary have been fact-checked and to be found to be spurious at best and mostly wrong. But by doing that, right, they're giving that documentary air. And um, it's kind of like we discussed this during pandemic, the kind of removal of the documentary or the references to the documentary then make it sort of exciting. And people are like, well, what, what don't they want us to know? What truth are they hiding? And so by this continual coverage of the claims, even though we're, a lot of the media says these claims have been fact-checked or incorrect, that still gives those claims life. Yeah. So we see this movie having a kind of a double life. It had a life in early summer and now it's, it's got a life again. I, I agree. I think people are kind of lining up to dunk on this film. I think in, in some ways, the, the, the movie, the way it presents some data, I think certainly warrants some fact checking. And I think we can get into that here in a second. But, but it does seem like by trying to call attention to it, it this late in the game, it really is just bringing a lot more attention to it in general, which, you know, might not be a very good thing at all. But we're, we're going to talk about it today. I think just in terms of why this film is relevant for understanding that kind of broader context that you brought up at the beginning of the conversation. What, what is going on with people's perceptions of the election coming up? And, you know, what kinds of consequences is that going to have? 
And I think we'll also spend a little bit of time too talking again about some of the tactics. So why is this sticky? What about this film is very slick and kind of sexy in some ways that make people stop and say, well, wait, they're making some claims. Wait, there's some maps here. Maybe then you might pause for a second and say, well, maybe those claims are correct, right? So this film uses a whole host of techniques uh, to try to make some of their claims more convincing. Yeah. So for those who, who don't know, 2000 Mules is a documentary you called it a disinfomentary. I agree. It, it's a, a documentary form uh, film that tries to kind of create an expose on supposedly a coordinated operation of ballot harvesting and muling. That is, one person drops off multiple ballots at multiple locations at almost an industrial scale so that you can have one person. You can have, you know, it all boils down to we can, this conspiracy means that one person can actually create hundreds or thousands of votes. And given that ratio in certain areas and certain parts of the country, just 2000 of these mules were able to swing the election. And so that's the basic premise of the film. And I, I, I like your emphasis on maps because it really is a map-based argument, right? We zoom in and out of the country. We, we check out different voting districts. We look at different, different supposed ballot mule behaviors to be able to track down how they loaded up these ballot boxes illegally. That's the basic idea of the film. But, you know, Sean, what was, in your opinion, what, is, what are some of the more devious ways, or start with one devious way that this film kind of creates this argument? Well, one is there's there's this use of video footage, so it's kind of like a you know CCTV style footage. Actually, yeah, they did this, use CCTV, yeah. Like they acquired like actual the, CCTV. Yes, and it's not like the 4K like high definition. You know, you still got a little grainy, kind of trying to figure out what's going on, and then <laughs> they start to you know. So you so you can see like there's a person going up to a Dropbox, then you see this person put ballots in and they, they narrate this as if it's like an NFL football game, right? In a way of, well, look, see what's happening. See, they have multiple ballots in their hand, right? But if we look, we don't see the evidence that this person was doing this at five different drop boxes, right? We only see the film of this person, you know, carrying one or two ballots, maybe four ballots. I don't know. We, but they're, they're making claims based on this kind of spurious evidence and saying like, see, look, look, there's a video of someone stuffing more than one ballot in this Dropbox. Look, they're wearing a hoodie, right? Well, yeah, it's, you know, that could be that their family members have ballots and they're dropping off ballots for their family members, which are, that's completely legal process, right? But their claims are, look, and then they kind of flip to a map and then they say, we have mobility data that they, they put on a map with a bunch of dots. And they're like, see, we found this person in multiple locations. And then they kind of quickly move on to the next one. So it's this kind of like drop sensational evidence with some video footage with another map. And then like, boom, we move to the next one. So there's pretty fast pace. But um, I think the CCTV is used as a very dramatic technique to kind of draw you in and start to make some claims. Yeah, it's interesting when you're looking at some of the CCTV CCTV footage from the film. Uh, it feels uh, almost kind of forbidden or voyeuristic, right? Because it you get to be part of the surveillance. But you know, actually, just yesterday, uh, the Washington Post reported that one of the alleged mules is actually suing the filmmakers uh, because he states that he was dropping his family's ballots off in Georgia, which is legal. And so 
you know, I think if you watch anybody through a CCTV camera, right, if you just watch somebody like watch your friend go get groceries or something, and it's from a CCTV camera, it already kind of uh, kind of implies something just by revealing them on CCTV, right, that you're going to go get them for something. I think we've seen enough uh, or people have consumed enough media where that CCTV footage, when you see that angle and you see that quality of it, then you're expecting evidence. You know, how many different uh, like crime shows do we look at? Uh, where somebody goes to the CCTV and like that's where the evidence is, and so like I, I think you're right. It's, it's really appealing to a, a certain kind of set of generic expectations, um, where this is where the evidence is. This is how the crime is committed. But then there's no real, you know, no person shows up more than once in any of these CCTV tapes. So there's a there's a big problem with that argument. Right. So I mean, if if their argument was that there are these mules doing this at multiple Dropbox locations, then you should have CCTV footage of multiple ones. In some ways, it's at like least, yeah. unsolved mysteries meets reality TV is like the kind of intersection uh, of this CCTV footage. Yeah, and it, I I feel like the same thing happens with some of the maps that they present, uh, where you know it, I think sometimes when you're uh, watching anything, it can be hard to tell the difference between an actual. Uh, like visualization of the data versus uh, an interpretation of the data. And I think when they show somebody moving down roadways, they're interpolating a lot of that data into a set of paths that is not the raw data or is not a literal uh, description of the data. And again, like I don't think it's important to like fact check every single last one of these different things that we're observing, but it's important to, to point out, you know, to, to what you're interested in as well as these techniques. So showing a map that looks kind of technical is There's a like way of lending credibility, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I like that way of, right. of putting it. Cause we have these, they have various, they have little circles on a map, which imply points. And we're used to seeing little circles on a map. So we see like Google maps, right? Apple maps. There's a, there's a little circle and that's a very specific latitude and longitude. That's very, very accurate unless it asks you to drive into the ocean, right? It's pretty a pretty accurate map, right? And we're used to seeing that and they're using these same techniques, but then they they use this claim as like mobility data is what they call this, right. but we don't know what their source of data is. And then some of the maps have been called into question. So like the Washington Post called them out saying one of their maps of Atlanta, if you overlay a map of Moscow, you can actually see, well, there's the river in Moscow. It's actually not a map of Atlanta, right? So um, there are applying a lot of things through the use of these maps, but they're, there's, they're not really showing the receipts behind them. They're saying, well, this is an interpretation of the data. And I mean, we don't even know what, we don't even know what that means, right? An inter interpretation of the data, we've just gone off the deep end into now the data really doesn't mean much. Um, and especially since when they've been pushed, they then just say, well, we use multiple sources of, uh, of mobility data, but they still won't say what that means. And as academics, I think that it would be very important to us to see, you know, what are their methods? How are they analyzing the data? Where did it come from? What's the time frame? Those are all questions we would be trained to ask. But then if we move beyond that, right, and some folks might roll their eyes and say, well, don't be academic, right? Um, but then if, we're, well, if we consider this to be evidence, right, you have to then document the evidence and explain why is evidence of something. And they don't do that in the film either. Yeah, so it... It's, we got a couple different things cooking here with this film that there's a, a kind of a true crime uh, perspective on it where they where they're using the the CCTV and and then, then there's a there's this other kind of 
gesture towards being really data driven and rigorous, even though they might not be. And then, and then I feel like there's this emphasis on scale uh, to make it seem like this, this conspiracy is actually vast, that this wasn't just one or two different situations that, you know, it was at once very well distributed, right. All across the country, but they keep driving the point that this was a kind of precision attack on the election, right. That only places that were very close where this kind of thing might work. Um, so, so those three things seem like they combine together to create this conspiracy that is, you know, flavored like crime in a way that we understand it, that is backed up by all this rigorous data, and that is so vast and coordinated, it implies that the person behind it or the people behind it must be incredibly powerful, connected, and intelligent, right? So if I'm going to say, here's a conspiracy that was basically using just 2,000 people to apply these hyper-sophisticated pressure points to the federal election to flip it around. That's terrifying. That is a terrifying allegation. And then that goes back to this long thread that we saw as part of the 2016 election, as part of the 2020 election, right? That democracy and your freedom is a threat. And then we also saw that peak during COVID which we're still in COVID, but we saw that peak during, you know, if you wear a mask, a mask is um, infringing upon your freedom. The sort of restrictions are infringing upon your freedom. And again, they're changing the election to infringe upon your freedom and they're all corrupt. And so that this is all connected together to soften the ground to then help all of this seem much more believable and much more dangerous than it truly is. Yeah, and I think there's this, I think the sense of the pervasiveness and the sophistication of this particular election conspiracy is what is part of what makes it, it kind of establishes the stakes of the conspiracy, right? That it is, that it is huge, that it will, that'll swing the election, uh, that the opponent is incredibly sophisticated. I don't know. Well, I think that there's it kind did of did swing the election. Yeah, that it did. It that it did. The 2016 election. Now imagine I mean, if it swung the, sorry, the 2020 election, now imagine since they did that, imagine what they're going to do in the midterms. And now imagine after they've refined it even more in the midterms in 2024, it's just going to be out of control, right? So there's a trajectory to this that it's going to continue to heat up and the conspiracy theory is going to continue to get hotter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that these conspiracies were, um, a kind of equally circulated. I'm not trying to create too much false equivalency here, but in 2016, there were certainly some conspiracy theories about Russians directly accessing voting machines and changing the votes. And that that is another example of a conspiracy where your opponent is incredibly sophisticated and it it creates a swing in the election and it's a precision attack. I think the difference, though, or an interesting difference between those kinds of conspiracies and the conspiracies that we're seeing right now for the 2022 midterm and and back in 2020, but especially in 2022 and especially in Arizona, is that this behavior is observable locally and personally, right? You can't just have a neighborhood watch stop the Russians from hacking voting machines, but you can have a neighborhood watch trot on down to a polling location and threaten the hell out of somebody who you think doesn't belong in the voting line. 
I mean, we did see some of this in the 2020 election with folks at vote count centers and some voting centers, and that's just intensified. So the example that you gave at the opening of uh, some folks basically sitting in their trucks outside of Dropbox locations, wearing tactical gear with guns, taking pictures of uh, everyone and harassing election staff. Right. That's an example of like, you must go observe with your own eyes. See, you know, this person is wearing a baggy coat. They must be doing something suspicious, right? You're now, uh, you've now kind of anointed, right? Um, Or appointed, you know, these folks as election observers and reporters of any problematic activity that they may find. And then they turn that problematic activity into, you know, more fuel and justification of the conspiracy theory. Yeah. And it's, it really is an interesting contrast in the stakes are existential, right? It's like the future of the country and then how you actually, cause think about it, right? Like the film does this, does this argument where if, if you just make a couple precision interventions, you can swing things. And I think that works as a kind of implicit argument about policing certain voting locations that if, if they can do it, then you can do it and you have more power than you think to actually prevent this kind of work because all this stuff is observable locally in your own backyard. It's a bit of a like McGruff the dog or Smokey the bear, right? Like only you can prevent forest fires, but in this case, only you can prevent election fraud by dot, 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 right? Going and observing, going and harassing, like claiming, using the tools that you have to claim, you know, the fraud. Yeah, you just invented dystopian democracy, Smokey the Bear. Um, who, well, who doesn't seem like he's a bear. He's got to evolve. He's not as much fun, I think. Well, I, I think this is true. You, you know, <laughs> you. I mean, in in 2020, we had all this all this kind of uh, footage that was recontextualized. We could say of of people dumping new ballots into the voting locations. You know, or, and we even had people, you know, tweeting out line graphs of when the votes were counted to show, show that. Well, there were more votes counted in this short period of time. That must mean that they were fake. But ba- I mean, there's all kinds of allegations there that 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 the that the people actually running the election were the ones at fault. But now, in in, in with something like 2,000 mules, or when you get these um, these voting location patrols, the idea is no, you can actually observe the fraud outside of the building. You can observe the fraud in the parking lot. Again, which feels like a really dangerous invitation. I, this is just kind of a building, right, of what happened in 2020 um, to a certain degree. But also, I think another difference, in addition to the sort of disinfomentary, right, is that we also have candidates. I mean, we had candidates, right? Trump, when he was running for president, you know, was talking about the fraud and kind of softened the ground. But we have just a number of candidates now. Like a, They've just sprung up, right? Um, you know, if you look at the secretary candidate for the secretary of state in Arizona, the Republican candidate, he's, you know, he's already said, you know, there's fraud. I'm not going to accept the election unless it goes the way that I think it should go. But basically here's what, here's my prediction for the election. If my prediction doesn't come true, that means that there's fraud. And then but everyone needs to go observe and make sure that fraud, like it's your duty. Only you can prevent an election fire, right? The new Smokey the bear. So, uh, and those, so we've moved from like an implication that they will be here to these calls to action, 
which then asks people to go do things. But the problem is these folks aren't trained in election procedure, right? So you can participate in election observation. That's And you would see many, many secretaries of states and county clerks that have invited folks to say, come, if you want to participate, if you have questions about the election, come and volunteer and be part of the process. And those folks are trained uh, to, you know, we have a member of every party that assesses ballots that, you know, any any questions of what a voter's intent is, they participate in that process, but they're trained to say, look, well, here's a ballot, here's the procedure, all these things. The difference is now we have people on the outside that refuse to participate, even though they've been welcomed and opened into the process of like, please come ask us questions, come go through our process, come participate. Instead, they're like, no, 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 y'all are corrupt. You are, you know, you want to commit this fraud. So we're going to stand outside and watch, but we don't really understand the process, but we're going to make a bunch of claims about the process and intimidate people as fodder for continued claims about election fraud. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it just, we're in kind of an upside down point in some of this rhetoric where the best way to preserve democracy is to menace people before they vote. It's a really bad uh, Halloween movie. It's a, it's a bad Halloween movie. And it, it's, and again, like I, I, you know, the, for those who are kind of bought in, it doesn't feel like menacing, right? It feels like, oh, I'm just observing. But I think as we start to see some of these conspiracies invite people to take their own kind of, to do whatever they can to help, uh, then, you know, I, I think it's, it's not shocking to me um, that that other people are going to experience this as implicit violence uh, or as or as or as or as threatening conduct. And you know, it's it's not surprising to me to also hear the people who are doing the threatening say, "But we're just observing. What's what's the problem, right?" And so I think uh, some people won't cop to or don't acknowledge just how much of a climate of implied violence there has been created since certainly since January 6th, um, that, that, that feels like it's, it's in the air that now all kinds of things are possible, right? So, you know, the speaker of the house, um, her husband, right. Was assaulted. Um, someone broke in to where he was and tried to tie him up. This is really profound stuff. Uh, this is just very recently, right? Some of this stuff is coming out. Um, I think it was CNN that was first to report uh, some of the details of that story. We're in a situation where people might think or claim that they're just observing, but none of those things are outside of the context of where we are now, where we're starting to see some of these uh, kind of violent organizations and demonstrations or even these these attempts on threatening the safety of different public uh, public officials and elected officials. When we've had, uh, well, I guess there's observing, right? And then there's observing in tactical gear. There's observing and then there's observing in tactical gear with automatic weapons. And uh, so we want to take that into to the context, right? Who's going to feel comfortable considering the climate if someone's observing you with tactical gear and weapons and you're trying to drop off your ballot, that's going to make a lot of folks uncomfortable and feel unsafe, especially with some of the mass violence that we've had in the political stream and outside of the political stream in schools, other public places. And, uh, 
and we have to be careful about the rhetoric because some folks, you know, just kind of use this rhetoric as part of their uh, political stances, but other folks might take that rhetoric literally and seriously and then act on it because they might feel their life. You're saying your way of life is threatened. You must do something about that. Well, that means someone's going to pick up that torch and do something about that. And that chances are, won't be a very friendly thing that they're going to do. Yeah. And I, and I feel like that asking someone to observe is a lower floor or as a lower bar to clear, I should say, than asking somebody to patrol a polling location with weapons. However, you know, so I think, so I think, you know, we saw this last cycle and we're going to see it this cycle where people are going to show up to just observe. Um, but I think given, you know, after January 6th, having somebody show up to observe feels a little different and means something a little different than beforehand. Because and they're choosing to action. observe outside of the process, right? There's a way. There's yes. there's an open. There's a transparent process for them to observe, and they're turning their back on that process, and they're choosing to observe in the way that that they want, and then making claims about something because they're like, "Well, I wasn't granted access," and they said, "Well, here's how you get access," and they're like, "No, no, 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 I want this kind of access where I can go." rifle through containers in a building. And they're like, well, we can't do that for all these reasons. Here's the observation process. And they're like, no, 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 you won't let me observe. So I'm going to stand outside. Right. So in some ways, the by refusing to participate in the process and observe in the threatening way that they're observing that, then they use that as evidence, right? Just like in the film, by putting up CCTV footage, right? Of someone dropping off their ballots or like, CC, this is evidence of something. And then someone says, well, well, but that was me. And I just dropped off my family's ballots. And they're like, see, you dropped off multiple ballots, right? It's, it's very sort of hyperbolic, which then gets everyone amped up in an environment we're already amped up in. And then they're like, your way of life is under threat. So then of course people are going to do stuff about that. And that's dangerous. And that's not yeah, healthy and- for, for a democracy and a republic. <laughs> and I, I- I saw in parlor, you know, the post that was getting some, some traction of, it was just a photograph of a guy changing his, or like a screwing in his license plate on a brand new car. And someone used that as, you know, photo documentary evidence of someone concealing their license plate because they were gearing up to be a, a, a ballot mule. And it, these kinds of claims and the idea that you can just go out and observe in the parking lot, um, they're not, they, they they are different now that our country has had people die because of lies around the election being stolen, right? It is different now because we have had real casualties associated with this particular set of conspiracy theories. And so it's just going to feel different because it is different to have people contesting the integrity of the election just show up in the parking lot to watch um, because it's already been demonstrated that these kinds of groups, that this cause has been able to motivate people to do violence, even on, say, police officers or, or threatened elected officials. So do you think do you think there are officials that can talk to these folks, right, that they'll trust, right? So if they come out and make claims, election officials come out, they say something and they're like, you're corrupt. That's not true. The police come out and they're like, well, you're in league with the election officials. So like what officials can talk to these folks or what's the effect of the fact that some officials can't talk to these folks? Like what are the stakes here? Well, I mean, I think we've ruined any capability to have, you know, an actual conversation publicly about 
our elections, which I feel like that's like the first and, and, and most obvious problem. But, you know, the another kind of knock on effect with this is that because we are in a situation where we don't believe any evidence at all, we will not it'll be much harder to reconcile after the election takes place. And so every election or kind of decision that is made by vote is going to have pressure on it, is going to have a shadow cast on it. This is not the last time we're going to see this playbook. No, I mean, I I have concerns about, you know, the discussions that we're about to have as the count proceeds for the midterm elections and as results are released for the midterm elections. I just imagine there's going to be a lot of controversy and I would argue unnecessary controversy because of the conspiracy theories and because of docu- mockumentary, doc, you know, disinfomentary type content like 2000 Mules. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a grim look forward. And I, I feel like maybe an appropriate way to end for today. I think this will be our last podcast before the midterm election. Are we going to try to squeeze one in even beforehand? I think we'll we come back know. right after the midterm, probably. Okay. But we'll yeah, see. So this Maybe will, we'll surprise yeah. everyone again, just like we surprised everybody with this episode. A flash of incredible productivity in just two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I, I think looking forward, uh, I think there's just a certain sort of mental preparation um, where this shouldn't be a surprise that there's going to be discord after this election, that, you know, where previously elections are oftentimes, you know, places where people... Uh, understand or render forward some kind of popular decision uh, or at least collective decision. But uh, I guess that's what it is at its best. But I think we're going to see a lot of what an election can do at its worst uh, in our state and and nationwide. Sadly, that gives us uh, fodder for many future episodes. Right. Well, let's start with some illustrations of uh, Smokey, the election bear. But... And with the dystopian with the, election bear, yeah, that with a dystopian election bear, and, and is that with our that new mascot, well, sure, uh, we're gonna need someone to draw him up. Is that your call to action? It could be, it could be. Okay, well, that's all we have for today. Uh, thanks for joining us this time. Be thoughtful and be well. Thanks.